think tonight, pretty much all of the passages in um, in the text that we're going to go through is just straight through 19 uh, through 20 tonight. So uh, you can follow along in your Bible, or I've got the verses printed for you in your verse packet there, or the your packet there uh, in the in the back. Um, last week, as we went through this, let me make sure I, my, my little clicker works. Does my clicker work? You got to get on the slides, I think. You, you good? There it goes. All right, cool. Um, so uh, last week we saw where Ahab uh, leaves Mount Carmel and Elijah leaves Mount Carmel. And, you know, Elijah has just killed all the prophets of Baal and um, and there's been this tremendous miracle on top of Mount Carmel and, you know, Ahab goes home and, and you would think that after seeing the kind of thing that he saw there on Mount Carmel, he's going to go home and perhaps even repent, maybe even tell his wife, look, I think we've made some serious miscalculations here. And that's not at all what happens. It seems like that's kind of what happens with the people that are on Mount Carmel. They seem to have some genuine repentance. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. They say, but then, and then they, they help kill the prophets of Baal. But then after Elijah leaves, Ahab tells Jezebel what's happened. And Jezebel says, look, you know, the gods do to me what you did to the prophets if I don't do that to you, if I don't kill you by the end of the day. And so Elijah sort of in fear runs, to Je- runs from Jezreel, where he is, down all the way to the Negev and Beersheba, and eventually to the plains of Sinai, where he meets with the Lord there on Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, um, he pleads his case before the Lord. And where we saw, you know, some years ago, 600 years ago or so, Moses met with God on that same mountain where he actually interceded on behalf of Israel and begged the Lord not to kill Israel. And the Lord heard Moses' plea and didn't kill them, Elijah is here on Mount, uh, Mount Sinai pleading the exact opposite. He's saying, look, here is what Israel has done. They've forsaken the covenant. They have broken it in every capacity. There seems to be no turning their hearts toward you at all. And so uh, God basically delivers Elijah a, a promise. Let me get to that slide here, maybe. There it goes. Um, where Moses, uh, you know, Moses has spoken to God. Elijah now now speaks to God um, to condemn Israel, and God issues a decree of judgment. Essentially, he tells Elijah that there's going to be three swords essentially that rise up out of um, this promise that he's making with Elijah. One of them is going to be Elisha that will replace him. Another is going to be Jehu who is going to replace uh, Ahab on the throne eventually. It's going to take some time to get there. Um, another is Hazael in Damascus or Aram or Syria, as it were. It goes by all three. But, um, but essentially, uh, those three swords essentially are going to, uh, he's going to rise up and they're going to take down the house of Ahab and they're going to kill anybody that stands in their way. And so, we left off there where Elijah has this promise. And so now he's going to go down into to Elisha. He's going to find Elisha the prophet. And Elisha is going to be plowing with his oxen. And he's, Elisha is, you know, like any good millennial, he's living at home, all right, with his parents, <laughs> working at home. Well, I guess unlike the millennials, he's working. But, uh, but <laughs> no offense to any millennials. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm one. Uh, ashamedly. Uh, no, uh, so he approaches Elisha and he um, basically anoints Elisha as uh, the, the heir apparent prophet. Uh, so he's going to basically invites him to come follow along with Elijah. And Elisha does something what seems kind of strange in the text is that he doesn't just pick up and follow Elijah immediately. He tells Elijah, look, I'm going to go but here, I got to do something first. I've got to go and I've got to, I got to tell my parents, I got to tell my pops that I'm leaving. To which 
no doubt his mom cried and his dad jumped for joy, I'm sure. Uh, but but uh, Elisha tells his parents, I got to kiss my parents. I got to kiss them goodbye. And he leaves. But one of the things that's very interesting, well, let's read the text and then I'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. The Lord said to him, this is in uh, 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall announce Hazael to be king of, of Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Elisha, the son of Shaphat uh, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed, passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again. For what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went to Elijah and assisted him. Now, this passage always was really strange to me because this is not what you see in the New Testament, right? This In the New Testament, you have the story of Jesus calling uh, people to be his disciples. And in Matthew 9, the, the guy comes up to Jesus and he's like, I want to come be your disciple, but let me go first bury my father, who's probably sick at the time. And he says, let the dead bury their dead. Come follow me. Doesn't even let him go back. And that's not what we see here. And so you're tempted to kind of say, okay, is Elisha being sort of weird here? Is he not wanting to follow? Is there some reluctance? And that's not really the case at all. In fact, um, Elijah, it's agreeable to Elijah to go for Elisha to go back and, and say goodbye to his father. But one way that you see the commitment of Elisha here is that he burns his oxen. Or it might be his dad's oxen. I'm not sure. But <laughs> certainly that would be a lot more strange if he burned his dad's oxen. But it sh- it, I think it, what it shows is his, is his commitment to the cause. He's not returning. His expectation is not to have to return to the oxen and pick back up to the farming life. Instead, what his expectation is, is that he's going to leave and he's burning all of his bridges behind him. He's, he's killing everything. His, his chance of survival in in his previous life is is burned to the ground and so he is literally forsaking everything and i think that's even the case where he's telling his parents goodbye um you know he he tells them goodbye burns his oxen and then leaves i could just imagine that's why it was always weird to me i could just imagine that you know uh, his dad was like okay you're leaving and then you also burn my oxen why did you burn my oxen you know i always thought that was funny but uh anyway so Elijah comes up to him and sort of out of the blue just sort of puts his cloak on him. And there's not necessarily a proper anointing as you would see like with a king where there's, you know, the prophet breaks the oil and puts it on his head. But essentially him putting the cloak, Elijah putting the cloak that uh, he had as a prophet on the shoulders of Elisha is no doubt the the qualification of anointing that is Elisha's anointing him taking the mantle that he bears and putting it on the shoulders of Elisha there's there's no doubt in my mind that Elisha knew who he was knew that Elijah was a prophet and was a man of God and probably knew who he was you know who knows he may have even been on Mount Carmel Um, but there's probably not much of a doubt that Elijah knew who Elisha was as well um, so it's not as though it, the way it's presented in the text, obviously, is it's sort of out of the blue. Odds are it wasn't. Uh, odds are they, they probably had some familiarity with one another. Um, but um, nevertheless, Elisha is anointed and he leaves everything and follows after Christ and I, or after Elijah. And I think probably the implication here, too, in the Gospels is that what Christ is calling for is something that even more than what Elijah called for. You know, Elijah was, you know, you can part with your previous life before you take up the call to follow me. And Jesus is saying, what I'm asking for is even uh, even a steeper commitment, uh, as it were, 
to leave father and mother, even hate father and mother, um, you know, as he puts it in, in the Gospels, which is always um, kind of communicates that strength of the, of the call. So the importance, I think, of understanding a lot of what we're doing in this study through the Old Testament is not just thinking about uh, just reading the text and taking it as it comes, because what you'll notice as you read through the Old Testament is this sort of presented to you in these sort of episodic movements, right? Like you get, okay, Elijah, Elisha is called to be a prophet. And then all of a sudden now we have Ben-Hadad, which is what we're going to focus on in chapter 20, where Ben-Hadad out of Damascus or out of Syria, um, or you may have in your text Aram, but it's, it's all the same place. But Ben-Hadad kind of picks up and now all of a sudden he's ready to attack Israel and we're on to a new episode. But what I hope to help you see is that all of these things that are taking place in the Old Testament, they're happening for a reason. We, we can't forget that when we read the Old Testament, these are real people. And they had this, and people have been the same for thousands of years. And so we all know that they're driven by the same kinds of things that often drive us. They're sinful in some of the same ways that we're sinful. And they, they do things for virtually the same reasons we do them. And I think we're going to see that with Ben Hadad. And so part of what I want to do is not just focus on what happens in the Scripture. We want to do that too, but also help understand why this potentially could have taken place and why, why it does take place and what we know about the history around the area to give us reason why these kinds of things take place. So on the international scene, uh, Ben Hadad won. Ben Hadad I, he's the king over... Uh, like I said, in your text, you may have Syria or you may have Aram, depending on the uh, translation. It's the same area. Sometimes it will be referred to by its, by its most prominent city, Damascus. Um, but Ben-Hadad I starts to prepare to go to war with Israel. He's ready to come in and attack uh, Samaria and attack Ahab. And so ha- the way he does it, basically, is he sends to Ahab an ultimatum. All right, give me everything you got. Give me all your best stuff, basically your gold, your women, and your children, and I won't kill you. And shockingly, Ahab's like, all right, yeah, that sounds fair. <laughs> and, and so what does any king do when he comes to Ahab? Now, we've seen Ahab, right? Ahab is not like the strongest guy at all. He's not, he's not Mr. Macho Man. He's sort of kind of a weak guy. In fact, we, we see he's kind of a puppet. For his wife, Jezebel is sort of running the show, at least in terms of the religion particularly. And so Ahab is run over pretty easily by Ben-Hadad. But what Ben-Hadad sees when he kind of puts that offer out there on the table is that it's Ahab's fine with it. Well, if you said to somebody, like, I'm selling my car and it's, you know, it's only going to be $10,000. The guy's like, $10,000, that's great. You might, in the back of your head, go... Uh, twelve thousand, <laughs> right? Like you kind of want to raise the price, and that's exactly what Ben Hadad does here in the text. He's like, okay, well, I think I want to go a little bit further. Let's read the text in First Kings chapter twenty, verses one to twelve. Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered his all, all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria, and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your gold, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel said, As you say, my lord, O king, I'm yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Did I say all your silver and gold? said, I sent you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. The king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, uh, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell the Lord, tell my Lord, the king, all that you first demanded of your servants, I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Then Hadad sent to him and said, 
The gods do so to me. I think you've heard this before. The God do, gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him whose straps on his armor boast himself as, as who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. All right. So Ben-Hadad uh, readies his people and he's about ready to go. He's threatened the city once. He's threatened it twice. He's doubled down. He's wanted even more than he asked for at the beginning. And eventually the price is just too steep for even Ahab to agree. But he has to get all his elders to back him before he can, before he can really do that and kind of give him a little bit of backbone. Now, why is it that Ben-Hadad is wanting to go after uh, Ahab all of a sudden? Why is this coming about? Well, there's probably a couple of things going on. Now, remember who Ahab is married to. Remember who he's married to? Who's he married to? Jezebel. That's right. They all got it right here, everyone. It's 100. Uh, <laughs> married to Jezebel. Do you remember where Jezebel comes from? Remember? Oh, 50%. Sidon. Okay, she is the princess of Sidon. So Ahab is married to a Sidonian princess. Now, if I asked you to point out on a map where Sidon was, would you be able to do it? Okay, maybe, maybe not. Some of you, all right. Uh, Blake is raising his hand. I see that hand. God bless you. Uh, oh, oh, we've got other people that can see it. Okay, um, so he's married to a Sidonian princess. Now, why might this matter? Why would uh, a king of one land marry a princess of another land? For allegiances, right? So Ben-Hadad is probably looking at the marriage between Ahab and the king and the, the princess of Sidon, knowing that there is a natural alliance beginning to form already between Israel and Sidon. Now, let me show you why that matters. If you look at a map... Here, let me get out my handy dandy. Robert, you're going to follow me with the mouse for the people, for the thousands or for the millions watching at home. Um, here's Ben Hadad, Damascus and Aram. All right, Syria, Aram. Over here is Sidon. All right. Down here is Israel. All right. Here is Samaria, the capital city. So uh, Ahab is here, Sidon here. Notice what is formed here is, if it's a tight alliance, is going to be a blockade from Damascus getting down into the Mediterranean Sea for the resources that would be, if, if, you, hey, if you need resources, you need to be near water, right? Okay, so that's a blockade from him getting down here, but it also really blocks him from using the coastline for any, any reason, right? So... Probably one issue at play in ben, with Ben-Hadad is there's an alliance here, a natural alliance between Ahab and uh, the king of Sidon because he's married to the king of Sidon's daughter and probably did that for the alliances that could be, met, be formed there. We saw already back in, uh, back in Solomon's day that he formed an alliance with the king of Tyre, which is right next to Sidon, same area, all for their resources, right? Tyre provided a lot of the resources for the temple, for Solomon to build the temple. Uh, obviously, Ahab had to, be, had to start building some temples. Now, to Baal, not to God, but, but had to start building some temples, and he needed resources too. Well, he happened to marry Jezebel, right, who is a, has a natural connection to the area. So there's already kind of a, a, a formation of an alliance there, which most likely has some, you know, implications in the reason why Ben-Hadad decides to move into, into, Syria, into Israel. But that's probably not the most prominent one. Now, based on the demand that we see in verses 3 and 4, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, uh, just flat out, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and your children are mine. And Ahab just consents. He says, fine, you can have them. All right. Why would Ahab do that? Probably because Ahab is likely some sort of a vassal to Ben-Hadad. What is a vassal? 
do you know what that is? It's, a, it's basically a servant country. All right. Ben-Hadad would be the suzerain. He'd be over the vassal um, uh, Ahab. And so likely Ahab consents. Now, it's kind of Ben-Hadad's way of sort of throwing the hammer down. If there is any kind of alliance here, the only way Ahab could ever get out of the clutches of Ben-Hadad is if he has other alliances, his own elders, but then also the king of Sidon, maybe some other kings like Egypt and things like that, has some alliances that are going to back him that can get him out of that relationship. Well, that doesn't seem very agreeable to Ben-Hadad, so he's going to put his thumb down. But there's another even bigger reason why Ben-Hadad probably moves in, and that is because of Assyria. Not Syria, that's Ben-Hadad. It's not confusing enough. Assyria under Shalmaneser III is starting to begin to put together some sort of a military. Now, who is Assyria? We know who Assyria is. What significance, what part do they play in Israel's history? Kind of big, isn't it? What is it? They destroy them, yes. So we're looking right now somewhere in the 860s. B.C., near the 860s, 850s, 860s, B.C., in 722, so about 100 and roughly 30 years or so, from the time we are right now, Assyria is going to have an army strong enough to march in to Israel and just mow them down. And they're going to take the northern kingdom, they're going to take all the people in the northern kingdom, most of the people in the northern kingdom, and they're going to haul them away back to Assyria as slaves, like we will see Babylon do sometime after that to the southern kingdom. But And Assyria is going to leave behind some of their own people to kind of uh, basically breed out the northern kingdom, which is the Samaritans we see in the New Testament. So there's a huge problem, obviously, for the, for, the, for the Jews. So Assyria is this really big deal. Well, under Shalmaneser III, which is about the time that we're looking at in this text, Assyria starts mounting this really oppressive army. They're walking in and they are, under Shalmaneser III, conquering a lot of people. Well, notice that Ben-Hadad, when he comes to uh, Ahab, king of Israel, who does he have with him? 32 kings. Why would he have 32 kings? And why would the author of the text mention to us that he has 32 kings with him? What is he building? He's building an alliance. Why is he building a bunch of alliances? Well, because Assyria is out here to his, to his uh, which, which is basically to his, let me look at the map here, if I can get it up here. Hang on. Assyria is out here to his east. So Assyria is out here to his east and to his north, and they're a, a threatening presence, right? So if he's going to have any hope of defeating Shalmaneser III, he has to mount an army that can match him. And so how is he going to do that? Well, he's got to get Ahab. If Ahab is pretty close to Sidon, getting Ahab is also getting Sidon. It's probably also getting Tyre because Tyre and Sidon are birds of a feather. It might also connect him down into Egypt, which he could use some of the resources down in Egypt. So he's likely going into Israel as part of a, kind of a... a uh, force that he's kind of building in hopes of taking all of the resources of Israel and applying them to the war out east that he's about to have to fight in Assyria. So the point is to say, all of this happens for a reason. This isn't just some random episode that is we, we need to know about. It, it's actually happening for a reason. There's, there's reasons why uh, all of the, this king decides out of nowhere, it seems, to come in and march into Israel and take it. Now, Ahab refuses to the, the second command of, you know, I'm going to take everything, not just your gold and your women and your children. I want basically anything that I want. I'm going to come in and look at everything else you've got. I'm going to take your sports cars and all those kinds of things too. And I'm going to take them back with me. And so that is a burden too much for Ahab to bear. And so Ahab refuses the excessive payment. And as a result, he gets a message from a prophet of God to tell him what he should do. And we see this in verses 13 to 34. 
Look at this. He says, and behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hands this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. So the servants of the governors of the districts are the ones that are going to basically lead the battle charge. These are, the translation in the ESV is the servants of the governors of the districts. Basically, those are the youngest men in their employee. These are the interns, all right, again. So we saw that Sunday, he's going to grab the interns again, send the interns to lead us into battle. And, and what is the point here? Um, well, he tells us what the point is, that you will know that I am the Lord. Now, remember Gideon back in Judges? It's a famous story, obviously, and so you probably remember the story how God just whittles Gideon's army down to practically nothing. Well, when you think of your most fiercest warriors that are going to go out and fight Ben-Hadad, you're certainly not thinking about the interns, all right? Uh, and, and so God says, you know, who's, who's, or he says, who's going to lead us into battle? And the prophet says, the Lord says, the interns are going to lead you into battle. The young men are going to lead you into battle, and they're going to go in the midst of, when, when would they go, under the cover of darkness? No. I want Ben-Hadad to see them coming. We're going to do it in broad daylight which is, is basically how the Lord works, right? We've, we've come to experience this at, this at this point when he says, so that you will know that I'm the Lord, he's going to put all of the odds totally against him. So that at the end of this, Ahab will have absolutely no reason to trust that the Lord is God. And yet, Ahab is still going to fail. In fact, what we're going to see by the end of this is Ahab fails in a very similar way to King Saul in 1 Samuel as it brings closer to the approach of uh, Ahab's kingdom coming to ruin. So Ahab goes out and he fights Ben-Hadad and they win, they win the battle. Look, look at this. He says, um, and they went out at noon uh, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from uh, Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city. Remember, he's not sober. So, so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them. Each struck down his man. The Syrians fled. Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Again, basically. And the, king, and the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. So they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their place and muster an army like the army that you have lost horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Okay, so what's happening here? In the very next year, wait, hang on one second. All right, let's take a look again where this is at. I know you can't really see this very well. People at home might be able to see this a little bit better. Um, this right here is Aphek. This is where the second battle is going to take place. So with the first battle, uh, Israel, Ahab just whips Ben-Hadad up one end and down the other. Ben-Hadad has to run off 
screaming and and he's he's on horseback and he he gets away and he escapes but few other people do they they're almost all dead okay so ben hadad has to mount another attack and he has to come back and so this time they're going to attack him at aphek and you can see the logic that they apply to the second battle they're already telling him what the logic is well the last time we went down here and we got beat by um by israel in samaria we got beat on their home turf but you see their gods are the god of the hills Okay, but here's what we'll do. This time, our battle strategy is we're going to attack them on the flatlands. <laughs> so, if the god, if their gods are the gods of the hills, well, then they have no say over the flatlands. So, we're just going to attack them on the plains. And so, you can kind of see a little bit if you look closely at your map. Just here, outside of Aphek, are the are the plains, the flatlands, and so that's where they decide they're going to have this battle, this little skirmish, instead of being here in Samaria in the hills. And so. Uh, so they do. And so they say, you know, hey, their gods are the god of the god of the hills. His gods are the gods of the hills. And so if we attack them on the plains, then surely we will uh, we will have victory here. So Ben-Hadad and Ahab go at it again, this time in the hills. And once again, uh, Ahab wins the victory. Look at what it says here in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against uh, Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. (laughs) But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude in your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Sounds like the battle of Jericho, right, with Joshua? But Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber. Now listen to this. Entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servant said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waist and put put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Now, this is actually a really big deal. So we, we find out that one of the reasons why the Lord is going to squash Ben-Hadad like a bug is because he insulted the Lord. Your God's a God of the, of the hills, surely not a God of the valleys. And it is for this reason that I'm going to show you that I'm the Lord. I'm not only going to show you, I'm going to show Ben-Hadad. What does that mean that Ahab is supposed to do to Ben-Hadad? He's supposed to kill him. All right, go back. But instead of killing Ben-Hadad, he lets him go. He makes a covenant with him. And what is the covenant based on? Remember, the previous deal was Ben-Hadad was going to march into Israel and he was going to take all that belonged to Ahab and he was, going to, he was going to take all his money, his gold, his silver, his women, and his children. The covenant now is that he can come into Damascus, that Ahab can come into Damascus and he can take Ben-Hadad's money, essentially. He can set up a store there. You can set up a shop. I'll let you take your business internationally and I'll set it up here, your little shop, and, and you can sell your wares here. And you can make money and bring it back into Israel. So you can come into my country and you can take your money. So Ahab does not have the right to do this. 
It's not Ahab's win. It's not Ahab's victory. He was like two little flocks of goats standing in front of Damascus. The Lord had already in the previous year eliminated Ahab's army and gave him the victory anyway over Ben-Hadad. And now he looks like two little flocks of goats. And the Lord says, I'm still going to beat him. Why? Because he's insulted my name. And so just like what Joshua was commanded to do to Jericho, commanded to do to Ai, commanded to do to all the cities that they invaded, they were to do what? They were to burn it to the ground. So so it was with Ahab. He has the victory. He is supposed to burn them to the ground, kill everything that was in a fight against the Lord's army. And instead, he sells it out for money. The Lord is never kind with stuff like that when it's insulting to his name. So it's a, it's a personal offense to the Lord that happens here. And so we get this really strange passage in chapter 20, verse 35 to 43. And I want to read it first, and then I want to talk about what it means because it's very strange. A certain man, this is in, starting in verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I devoted to destruction. That's the same word that is used for what Joshua and the uh, armies of Israel were supposed to do. Therefore, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. So, okay. So, what, what's happening here? Well, um, basically, he's going to trap Ahab in a battle of self-condemnation. All right? Ahab's going to condemn himself. All right. How does he do this? By a little drama. Okay? He puts on a little play, but first he goes to a, the prophet goes to a man. This is very strange. I, admittedly, we don't really do probably a ton of this, but uh, nowadays, but the man goes to a guy and he says, all right, hit me right in the face. And the guy's like, no, I don't hit you in the face. And he says, well, okay, well, if you won't hit me in the face, you've disobeyed the word of the Lord. And so a lion's going to eat you. And sure enough, a lion eats the guy. All right. That's weird enough. So if a guy ever tells you hit me in the name of the Lord, you just you hit him, I guess. Um, that's the moral of the story. But he didn't, and so he's eaten by a lion. All right. <laughs> so he goes to the next guy, and he says, strike me, please. And the guy is like, with pleasure. And so he hits him as hard as he can, and the guy now has like cuts and bruises all over his face. And so he, with bruised and wounded, he bandages himself up, and it turns out that all of that was for the purposes of fooling the king into thinking that the story that he's about to tell him was actually true, that it actually happened, that he was supposed to be guarded. He was, he was put in a place, and a soldier was put over here, and the, the guy said, look, you need to guard this man. And if you don't guard him, then you're going to die. If, he, if something happens to him, you're going to die, or you're going to have to pay a talent of silver. But, but something, you're going to have to pay restitution for this man's life if something happens to him. And so it's agreeable to the guy. And then all of a sudden, he's telling the prophet's telling the king, all of a sudden, you know, I'm going here and there and I look up and my bodyguard's gone. All right. And so the guy has to die, right? That's the implication. The soldier has to die. And so he's coming to the, the king because he needs a judgment in the matter. That's what the king thinks. That's what Ahab thinks. And so Ahab tells the guy, all right, 
Well, as you said, the guy needs to be put to death. I give the death penalty for this situation. So then, in the ultimate Mission Impossible Tom Cruise moment, he rips off the mask and he says, ah, I'm actually a prophet. And Ahab goes, right? and he realizes, oh no, this is, this is a prophet. What have I done? He has condemned himself. This is a little drama that this man has put on for Ahab that's supposed to be kind of a parable of what, ben, uh, what Ahab has just done to Ben-Hadad. You were supposed to watch Ben-Hadad. You were supposed to do as I told you, and you didn't. So what is going to happen to you now? And Ahab immediately realizes what he's just done is given himself the death penalty in the eyes of God, Right? Uh, you'll remember the, probably the scene where, the, where Nathan the prophet goes to David and he says, uh, you know, the guy took this little sheep. It was the only sheep he had. And he was like, well, that man deserves to die. And he says, who is this guy? You are the man, right? Uh, similar kind of idea is playing out here. Um, there were essentially three responsibilities, three big responsibilities that the king had, particularly over Israel. Um, ah, go back. First, the king was to preserve sound worship. Meaning that they were to root out idolatry in the land, in the nation of Israel. So Ahab is 0 for 1 on that, right? He's building monument after monument. But, but also, they are to protect and not oppress their kindred. Uh, meaning, they're to protect the nation of Israel from being taken advantage of, and certainly not take advantage of their, their neighbors. Um, they're to bear faithful witness to the world as they fight Yahweh's battles against his enemies. So they're to do exactly what Yahweh commands them to do in battle. Um, but what we're going to see instead is that Ahab doesn't do every single one of those. He's going to walk through in the next three chapters and he's going to refuse to do each one of those. And here he is refusing to fight Yahweh's battles the way Yahweh wants those battles to be fought. In the next chapter, he is going to oppress his kindred by taking his land. And finally, he is going to absolutely reject the word of the Lord completely. Now, ironically, we actually see Saul do this same thing in 1 Samuel 13 to 15, except he does them in reverse order. But he does the same three. He commits very similar sins anyway. Remember in 1 Samuel 13, he's told to wait for Samuel to get there before he makes a sacrifice and let Samuel make the sacrifice. And he's looking at the Philistines and he's kind of pacing back and forth like a caged lion. And he's like, when is Samuel going to get here? He said he was going to be here right by now. He's still not here. I've all right, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, I'm just going to make the sacrifice myself. I know what I was supposed to do. I'm just going to make the sacrifice myself. Then the next chapter in 14, he says they have victory over the Philistines. And he says, look, there's a fast that's going to be on Israel. And I'm going to kill anyone that breaks it. And their army is hungry. And Jonathan has no idea about the fast that's been decreed. And he picks up honey and he eats it. Essentially, Saul, we talked about this at the time, Saul has just bound his own nation under a death vow. And he didn't have to, but he does anyway, as almost like a punishment, it, it seems. It wasn't. It was like a celebration of reward. But a fast? Why? That's ridiculous. Let your army eat. And then in, in chapter 15, remember, he's told to kill Agag. They kill the Philistines. They kill the, 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 uh, the, the other armies and he takes Agag, and he's told to burn him to the ground, and he lets Agag live. That's when Samuel comes along and says, the Lord's rejected you, and he hacks Agag to bits in one of the cooler chapters in all of Scripture. Um, so Ahab is essentially walking back through these same failures of Saul, which is really just a failure of the king of Israel to not listen to the word of the Lord and fight Yahweh's battles the way Yahweh wants them fought. When we talked about Israel's conquest into the land, one of the things that they're charged with doing is burning everything to the ground as devotion to the Lord. Because what, what, they, what they have to realize and what they're being taught is that I am the Lord and all of this is mine. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. 
It belongs to me. And why, are the, why is the nation of Israel even in that land to begin with? Why are they there? Why are they in that spot? And why are they charged to do that thing, burning everything to the ground? It's because it's a judgment on that land. The people in that land have been sacrificing their children to Molech. They've been doing all kinds of just heinous deeds in that land. And the Lord lets it happen for 400 years. He's shown 400 years of patience while Israel is in slavery in Egypt. And finally, he tell, he's told Abraham this, look, they're going to go back into the land because finally the time to judge the people in that land has come to fruition. And so you're going to go in and you're going to judge them. And so a failure to judge them in the way that Yahweh says to judge them is disobedience and absolute rejection of Yahweh to begin with. Because that's what ultimately they're saying is, I don't care what you want. This is mine, and I can have it if I want to. And that's essentially what Ahab is seeing. This is mine. I don't have to take what you say. I've got the, the victory now. You can't undo it. And this guy's offering me money, and so I can take it. It's mine. But essentially, the message that's happening in the Old Testament, it's unfolding with these kings of, of you know, rejecting the word of the Lord and taking what they think belongs to them, it's a sin that repeats itself not only in the Old Testament, it repeats itself in our lives too. I mean, every single week, don't we struggle with what is mine versus what is the Lord's holding on to things too dearly? I mean, I, I, I didn't realize how attached you can become to things until I had children. I mean... I fall into the trap that these kids are mine every single day, seemingly. It's, it, and it, it only gets harder as they get older. And as I look at my kid, and I know some of you are further along than I am, but as I, I look at my kids and like Grayson's eight, he's going on nine and, you know, and I, it's not many years left, you know? We're, we're under double digits left just about of him in the house. And I'm starting to think about that and going, man, the time has already flown by. And you just want to hold on to the kids as long as you can. And then you have to realize at some point, they're not yours. And they never were. And here's your responsibility as a parent. Raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And yet I have the temptation every single week not to do that, but to give them exactly what they want. To be their friend and to make them like me. Right? <laughs> We struggle with that trap all the time, but it, it's not just kids. It's, it's all of the things in our lives, whether wealth or, you know, all, I mean, even our own lives, we think they're ours. Yeah, hasn't coronavirus shown us that? That, man, we will do a lot to protect our health and our safety. And I think, hopefully, it's revealed to some of us, maybe, maybe all of us, that perhaps health and safety have become... I don't know, a God to us? Maybe. I don't know. Questions? Go ahead, Heather. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Heather was talking about her, her son is supposed to take a, a gap year. Is that what you called it? A gap year? Where they're supposed to do a, a, a summer mission uh trip with Youth for Christ in London and COVID pushed that back to presumably this year in August. And, and he's looking at some short-term mission experiences in like June and July. And she's kind of panicking going, wait a minute, you know, that you were supposed to go in August and I want to keep you for those next couple of, couple of months. And, and it's sort of that same kind of idea of, you know, that they don't belong to you. And, um, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard thing, man. I, 
I, I, I, I would break out in hives just thinking about that happening right now. Like, you know, uh, for my own children, it, it would, it's, it's hard. It's not easy, you know. On the other hand, when they become self-sufficient, you're like, woo <laughs> We did it. They flew the coop. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Good. Other questions or comments? Oh, all right. Man, everything's dead silent. Okay, all right. Okay, well, let's pray and let's go home. (laughs) (laughs) Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for an opportunity to walk through your word. And um, we see so many of the the, um, sins committed in, Old Testament times are sins we still struggle with every single day. Um, We have the blessing of having your spirit in us to convict us, to guide us, to even uh, lead us into good deeds, to actually, by the power of your spirit, do what is right. Um, to turn our hearts where they lean toward the ways of wickedness and by the power of your Spirit to trust that what you say is true. And we are grateful for that. But we also see many times where we, in our flesh, um, refuse Spirit's influence and pursue the things that we want. And even though we know it's not right. So we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that you would continue to lead us into righteousness. That you would continue to convict us where perhaps we've held on to things that we are under the illusion are ours. And we instead will let go of those things and trust all of that is in your hand that you have the power and the authority to bring the entire world under your heel and indeed you will so we pray that as we walk about this world that we would be ambassadors of your kingdom submitting to your will and desiring to see all of this come under your rule and your reign. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.